It's Friday, January 10th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. A warning for those listening, this first story is pretty gruesome. A 25-year-old Michigan man named Kevin Bacon has been murdered, allegedly at the hands of Mark Latunsky. They found each other on a dating app, met on Christmas Eve, and days later, Bacon was found in Latunsky's basement, hanging from the rafters by his ankles and his throat slit. Latunsky also allegedly admitted to cutting off and eating part of Bacon's body, his testicles. Latunsky's attorney is seeking an insanity defense for his client. For more on this story, we speak to Michelle Myers, Kevin's best friend and roommate, and she'll tell us more about the loss of her friend. Next, New York City has a garbage problem, and a lot of it has to do with the failures in their recycling program. For nearly two decades, New York City has almost completely outsourced its trash burden to other communities and have fallen short on ambitious recycling and waste reduction goals that other major American cities have accomplished. Politico New York has published a five-part series examining all the aspects of why all this garbage has become such a problem in the city. Sally Goldenberg, New York City Hall Bureau Chief, and Danielle Moyo, New York City Hall Reporter for Politico, join us for more. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. As a person, Kevin was very open. He was just the kind of guy we could sit and talk for hours just about anything. And he was very like philosophical. So he and I would just kind of, I don't know, have our own intuition about things and just sit and talk for hours on end about things. Joining us now is Michelle Myers, best friend and roommate of Kevin Bacon, who is the victim of a gruesome murder at the hands of a man named Mark Latunsky. Michelle, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. I want to start by saying, you know, I'm sorry for your loss. And I know that this is a pretty gruesome story that we're going to talk about, but we just appreciate you coming on and sharing your story and sharing the story of Kevin as well. The way this starts off, Kevin is from Michigan. He met a man on a dating app called Grinder. He met David Latunsky on Christmas Eve And it wasn't until a few days later that police found the body of Kevin Bacon. He was in Mark Latunsky's home. He was found naked. He was hanging from the rafters by his ankles. Latunsky told police that he had slit the throat of Kevin with a knife. And then he also allegedly admitted to eating part of Kevin Bacon's body. As I said, the details of this are pretty gruesome. Michelle, can you start us off and just tell us anything that you know, uh, details that investigators or police have shared with you about this so far? It was like Christmas Day, and he didn't show up for breakfast. And he was living at my house. He went out for the night and said, hey, I'll be out late. And I said, all right, that's fine. And then he said that um, he'd like to hang out with me later, me and another friend. And I said, no problem. And I texted him saying, hey, it's okay that you can come over to our friend's house after you're done. And he texted me back probably 45 minutes later, which was about 6, 13 PM that day and said, Oh, well, I'm going to be out late. I'm having a lot of fun. So I probably won't see you tonight, essentially. And I said, that's fine. I'll see you later. But uh, what's weird with iMessage is like, if they turn their phone off, it never gets delivered. So I didn't notice until morning that it never got delivered. That your messages back to him never got delivered. Yeah. So like he sent me a text at 613 and I responded by 623 and his phone was already shut off by then. Police later found Kevin's car at a family dollar store 
where his phone, his wallet, and there was some other clothes inside. So we don't know exactly when the car was put there and he was texting you up until that point. Did it seem like those texts were coming from Kevin himself? Yeah, just from the mannerism, like there's just ways that he words things. So I do believe it was him responding. If I mean, there's very well that he may have told him to respond as himself, but I really don't believe that. But we're still trying to figure out if maybe he was, if they're, we're trying to wait for a toxicology report, essentially, to see if maybe he was drugged and responded as himself still. And then his phone was turned off shortly after. What's interesting is I got a lead from someone that said that they saw an SUV uh, around 630. There's a Rite Aid right next door. And they had saw it around that same time. They drew me a picture of where they thought they saw the SUV, which happened to be the same spot where he, we found his car later. And we found out recently that Latinsky has an SUV. So like right around 630, because it kind of gives us a time frame that, you know, it would have been around the same time that they saw his car parked essentially adjacent to Kevin's car. And then that's where police were notified and were able to find the home there. Take us a step back. And tell us who Kevin was, because Kevin was only 25 years old. He was very young. He was a hairstylist. He was also going to the University of Michigan Flint, I believe. Tell Mm -hmm. us who he was. So Kevin was a hairstylist. We both went to high school together, and then he went to hair school. And then he worked as a hairstylist at JCPenney for a few years. Then he wanted to go back to school to do like clinical psychology. So he was majoring in psychology Um, He only had three semesters left. As a person, Kevin was very open. He was just the kind of guy we could sit and talk for hours just about anything. And he was very like philosophical. So he and I would just kind of, I don't know, have our own intuition about things and just sit and talk for hours on end about things. But he was a very open and transparent guy. The man who's alleged to have done all of this, Mark Latunsky, He does have a history of a mental illness. There's reports that have said that he's been diagnosed with major depression, paranoid schizophrenia, traits of personality disorder. And even in his arraignment hearing, you know, he was just talking about how his name isn't Mark Lentinsky. He believes he's uh, part of some uh, British family clan, the Thomas clan, things Mm -hmm. like that. I think Kevin's father said that he suspects that he might be using this mental illness card to kind of get out of some of this stuff. How do you feel about all this? How does the family feel? Uh, What can you tell us on that? I'm kind of on the same page. I'm sure that, you know, like I said, some of the psychosis, I'm sure plays a role into it. But I think that he's used this card in his last trial with the whole kidnapping trial with his, the custody of his kids. And I think that he's going to try to see how far he can get because it's really the, the only angle he has for him, I guess. So I'm on the same page essentially with his dad. Yeah, I mean, Latinsky's attorney, uh, his name is Doug Corwin, he is said that he is seeking an insanity defense for his client. He said just by the nature of the crime itself, as we mentioned, there's this element of cannibalism where he even admitted to have eaten parts of Kevin's body, just really unthinkable stuff. And he says, I have to send him for some type of criminal evaluation for this. And that's really one of the hardest parts about this. This is really the story is going to be ongoing for some time. This evaluation, they said, could take anywhere from 60 to 90 days. So, you know, it's just really tough to have to deal with all this when you want answers and you just kind of want to know exactly what happened. And obviously you want um, 
the person who did this to be brought to justice. Right. And I actually heard that it may be 60 to 90 days until he's admitted to the facility and then that he can be held for up to a year at that facility. I did see some of that. That facility is backlogged right now with other stuff. So it could be some time until that happens. It's just a horrible story to hear. Michelle, as I said, sorry for your loss and obviously for the family of Kevin Bacon as well. Michelle Myers, thank you very much for joining us and sharing your story. No problem. In 2015, that he wanted to slash the amount of waste we're sending to landfills and incinerators by 90%. So that would be a very small fraction, only 360,000 tons. But as we explore in our series, the amount of waste we're shipping out of the city has actually gone up since he made that pledge. Joining us now is Sally Goldenberg, New York City Hall Bureau Chief for Politico, and Danielle Moyo, New York City Hall Reporter for Politico. Thanks for joining us, ladies. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. We're going to be talking about a series of stories that you guys have been working on about recycling and the ongoing trash problem in New York. It's been something that administrations have been trying to get a handle on for some time now. Former Mayor Michael Bloomberg, the current Mayor Bill de Blasio have all kind of promised to tackle climate change and all sorts of stuff. And this is a problem kind of rolled into that somehow because... You know, a lot of the trash and disposal and all this stuff creates greenhouse gases, methane gases, depending on the landfills and the method that trash is being recycled and disposed of. So first of all, tell us a little bit about the series of stories that you're doing on the recycling failures in New York. So we're doing a five-part series looking at basically New York City's garbage crisis. And the whole basis of the story is that Mayor Bill de Blasio pledged in 2015 that he wanted to slash the amount of waste we're sending to landfills and incinerators by 90%. So that would be a very small fraction, only 360,000 tons. But as we explore in our series, the amount of waste we're shipping out of the city has actually gone up since he made that pledge. So we're looking at this from a variety lenses to kind of explore why we are so far away from that goal and basically what could get New York more on track with that pledge. So give us the big overview then. What is the overall goal? You mentioned a number there. What is that number that we're trying to reach with reducing the waste and recycling and all? So de Blasio pledged to cut waste by 90% by 2030. So what that would mean is an export of 360,000 tons of garbage that year. And for comparison's sake, last year the city exported 3.25 million tons. So, you know, a tremendous decrease by 2030. And he made the pledge in 2015. And we point out in the article that the export of trash has only increased since then. So he's going in the wrong direction. There are many reasons for that. The one that we wrote about today, which is a big part of the waste stream, is food and yard waste. It makes up about one-third of the waste stream, and it basically doesn't get recycled. There are some small pockets of the city that do composting, turning it into fertilizer, but for the most part, it goes into sanitation trucks, and then it gets sent to landfills and incinerators. So I think the single biggest thing he could do is turn that into some sort of citywide, either a mandate or just a citywide practice of recycling 
food waste, which is called organic waste. What areas have gotten this right? Because I'm sure when somebody's doing it right, other cities kind of take it as a model and try to build off from there. So who's doing it right? And then where is New York getting it wrong? So the two cities that we focus on in the series are Seattle and San Francisco. And these are cities that had voluntary organic collection programs and have since, for a long time now, had a mandatory program in place. And you can really see the effect of that. Those are two cities that are sending more to recycling and reuse than they are to landfill. So they have recycling rates of 60%. New York, by comparison, has an 18% recycling rate. And a huge reason for that is because we're just not recycling the large amount of food waste that we're sending to landfills every year. Where do restaurants and other businesses fit in? Because I'm I'm assuming restaurants have a lot more food waste than maybe a normal household would because the systems are different, right? Businesses and restaurants kind of operate under a different system than regular homes and so forth. So how does that kind of mesh together? Restaurants aren't serviced by the city sanitation department. They use private waste haulers. The overall commercial rate of recycling is about 25%, and a very small piece of that is organic. So I think it's about 1%. But the city recently put a rule in place that requires many more food establishments to recycle their organic waste. Right now, it's stadiums and it's very large establishments. But the city is expanding that rule. So I think they're hoping that that really makes a dent in it. It it won't affect that overall number that we cited in the beginning, that 3.25 million tons that were exported this year. That's all residential waste. Right now, where is the majority of trash and garbage going? Is it being exported out of the city? Is it going to landfills? How is it being handled? It all gets exported because New York City doesn't have a landfill. It had the Fresh Kills landfill in Staten Island, which closed almost 20 years ago. And it doesn't have any waste-to-energy facilities, what we would, you know, call incinerators. So all of the garbage is shipped somewhere else. Some of it goes to other parts of New York, New Jersey, Pennsylvania. Some goes as far as Ohio and South Carolina. But it's basically going, it's all getting sent out of New York. And that also is kind of creates the cycle that contributes to more greenhouse gases and all because it takes massive trucks. And I think you mentioned a couple of times, you know, just kind of the row of long haul trucks hauling out all the trash constantly. Yes. And that's especially prevalent in the private sector when we're talking about the waste generated by restaurants and commercial buildings, but also construction and demo waste. Most of that is hauled out on these long-haul trucks that are belching diesel exhaust. The city has, under a solid waste management plan they put in place in 2006, has been able to ship most of its waste out by barge or by rail, but they also rely on trucks in some cases. For example, when they take residential trash to Newark, that's all by truck. And so what are officials doing now to try to contain some of this? Obviously, you mentioned Bill de Blasio had some plans. Things just kind of fell through. Nothing's been really followed through on. Where do people stand right now? Because I know that local communities, I know a lot of people are getting pretty mad when there's a local school nearby and there's toxins going up in the air when some of these incinerators are going. And, and, you know, some of the, obviously the Fresh Kills landfill is not there anymore, but people were getting mad when kind of trash and everything was just percolating in the air. De Blasio is term limited. He has two years left in his term. 
And he was asked about the story a number of times yesterday and certainly didn't give the impression that he has some burning desire to change this anytime soon. I mean, he didn't endorse it, but, you know, it was sort of a lackadaisical response. So I think that the realistic answer to that is that it's up to the um, people who want to replace him as mayor or who are just, you know, on an upwardly mobile track in politics in New York who will probably end up taking this on. And there are any number of things that could be done. The one thing I will say de Blasio did do for the commercial end of things is he signed a bill into law last year that will regulate the commercial waste hauler industry. And there were many problems with it. There were identified many like safety related things unrelated to recycling. But he and his sanitation commissioner do believe that that bill will make it much easier for them to oversee the recycling rates of commercial establishments and enforce them. In terms of a mandatory organics recycling program, he hasn't committed to that. Well, he did many years ago, but there's no indication that he's going to do that, nor has he done some type of incentive, what's known as like pay-as-you-throw or save-as-you-throw, where you're sort of financially incentivized to produce less trash and recycle more. So it wouldn't surprise me to maybe see him do like a public education campaign, that type of thing, but I have a feeling that the mayoral candidates who want to replace him will take this up because it is an issue that New Yorkers talk about all the time. It's all the yeah. trash and, you know, the environmental impact and the quality of life impact of having trash everywhere. And the public information campaign is usually in a very important part of that. Oh, one of the officials you spoke to says it just seems like recycling in New York City is stuck in the early 90s. So it seems like it really requires a complete overhaul. There needs to be more infrastructure to help get rid of the waste and recycle the majority of it because the majority of it can be and it's just not being recycled and then on the other part of it you know the public as you mentioned with some of these uh, food waste things they need to be taught how to compost how to properly separate the waste so that it can be recycled properly too so there's a lot of issues here at play i do think there is confusion for some new yorkers on what they can recycle you know it was only a few years back they started taking rigid plastics like the plastic clamshell containers you get when you get takeout that only recently was allowed to be recycled and, and people may not know that something i didn't know that i learned reporting this was that you can recycle aluminum foil and obviously composting there's even more education like you said because people haven't done it before So there's an even steeper learning curve. So I do think some of this is just people not knowing exactly what to do. But there's also a big part of this is the need to reduce the amount of waste we're producing in the first place. And Sally mentioned something that other cities like Seattle and San Francisco use is a pay-as-you-throw model to basically incentivize you to be putting less in your garbage because you're paying for it. And that's something that the city had originally committed to studying and looking at, and it became politically untenable. We heard from the speaker saying he's very opposed to charging people for garbage. And that's something we're going to explore in this series as well. But I think just as important as it is to get New Yorkers to do the right thing on recycling, reducing the waste in the first place is a key part that hasn't really entered the public conversation as much. Sally Goldenberg, New York City Hall Bureau Chief for Politico, and Danielle Moyo, New York City Hall Reporter for Politico. Thank you both very much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. That's it for this week. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. 
Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Dive is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.